Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Mindy Yuri. The Futures and Foresight community comprises a remarkable and diverse group of individuals who span academic, commercial and social interests. At FuturePod, we seek to honour and to learn from the wisdom of those who have established and developed our field, to connect and support the practice of those who work in this space, and most importantly, to give pathways and inspiration to those who wish to join us in creating humane and better futures for ourselves and those who come after us. Our guest in the studio is Dr. Michael McCallum. Dr. McCallum is an internationally recognised speaker, author and facilitator consultant. As a macro historian or specialist in the evolution of large-scale social systems, his focus is on designing better futures as the world transitions from a mechanistic and centralised 20th century to a networked and collaborative society. Based in Melbourne, Michael has worked with a broad spectrum of public and private sector organisations at the highest levels across Australia and Asia. He has led conversations on unthinkable change with senior managers from some of the world's best-known companies and was a key architect of the New Zealand Foresight Project. Michael is the Chief Steward of the Centre for the Future Academy which brings together transdisciplinary scholars from across the globe who are interested in narratives of the next social system. A director of the international consultancy, Hames McGregor, and partners and a foundation member of the Association of Professional Futurists. He's also a member of the Oxford Futures Forum. He's been involved in the Cora.Dot space, a global strategic innovation platform that designs options for entities whose value proposition is under threat. Michael was instrumental in defining the concept of strategic foresight and co-authored a book on the subject in 2001, in addition to another book, Designing Better Futures, and a number of critically acclaimed essays. Michael's thesis was on the Third Industrial Revolution and the emerging collaborative age. He argues that this new way of thinking provides opportunities for cities, communities and institutions to create new value and beneficial arrangements in ways that have been hitherto almost impossible. Welcome to FuturePod, Michael. Thank you. Just to begin, can you tell us how you got into futures? What drew you to futures in the first instance? Well, I think there are two stories. So let me tell you those, I guess, in sequence. So, uh, around about 1990, um, two uh, important strategic thinkers, Gary Hamill and C.K. Prahalad, started writing in the Harvard Business Review uh, around the idea of strategic intent and core competence. And basically what they were saying was that the old boundaries that people like, uh, uh, that had been around forever, I guess, in the strategy space, were disappearing. And so they started to explore what this new space was about, bought bought on essentially by um, uh, PCs. And then they wrote a book called Competing for the Future. But the interesting thing about the book was they never quite answered the question, how do you compete with the future? And I was working in a small consultancy in New Zealand, 
And we were building process around this particular way of doing strategy, which, as I say, was a complete revolution. And then almost by mistake, uh, the American boyfriend of a friend of mine, uh, who now works at the World Bank, said to me, you should go to a futures conference. And I had never heard of a futures conference. And I ended up in Washington in 94. Um, I was the only strategist that they had ever seen. And I realized that living in a parallel universe were all of these futures thinkers. And I was really like a child in a lolly shop. So I rushed around from seminar to seminar, writing all of the stuff down in a very uncritical way. And I came back to New Zealand and I downloaded the whole thing to my then business partner, Nick Marsh. And we came up with this idea of foresight that was essentially what is now called backcasting, trying to stand in the future, imagine what that would be like. And then, of course, because we were strategists, we said, well, that's not enough. You actually need to work out how you use that to inform strategy. So that was when we started talking about the idea of strategic foresight. And that's exactly what it was. It was a fusion of our best understanding of futures tools, which was very rudimentary. And then putting the Prahalad and Hamill strategy thinking together with that. And that was, if you like, the model that we used and we uh, essentially developed inside the New Zealand Foresight Project, which was basically a five-year conversation almost in every sector of the country around where it was going, what was important, and what were the research needs. And that model was used... Um, to a reimagined re number of cities like Dundee and Glasgow and a whole lot of other places. So that was really my first story. That's how I got into it. But I must say I was regarded with a great deal of suspicion by proper futures thinkers um, who really didn't see any connection between strategy and futures. Uh, and that's, you know, that's their right. They can think what they wish. So that essentially was what you know, informed my practice for, I don't know, uh, 15 years. Uh, that's what I started to write about. But then I started to consider that, if you like, the age that we have been living in is towards the end of its use-by date. And so that's probably where my second story starts. And that's where my second book came from, Designing Better Futures, which started with the premise, if the age of progress is dead what do you now do about it? So it still had this, how do I respond to what I see? I was uh, very taken with the work of Jeremy Rifkin uh, and his third industrial revolution. But because of all the work I had done with research institutes, I was hunting around trying to find a academic basis for this out outlandish proposition, really. And I came across the word macro history and I remembered that my good friend Sahail Inyatula had actually edited a book with uh, Johan Galtung on macro history back in the 90s. In fact, he'd given me a copy, but it had long since disappeared. So I rang Sahail and I told him the story and he said, well, you should do a PhD, which under Sahail wasn't my idea of a good time. But anyway, I did. 
And so that, I think, uh, was, uh, if you like, my second journey, which was to start to understand that what I had originally thought about as being strategic foresight was, in fact, macro history, which is the fusing of the future's thinking with memories and patterns from the past into a kind of a consciousness of the now. So in that way, I sit a little outside of the future's school because it's, it's that intersection that interests me, not just the future's place. There's a, a very interesting French philosopher called uh, Paul Virilio, and Virilio talks about an idea called dromoscopy. And dromoscopy is the idea that you are sitting in a car, going as fast as you can, completely entranced with what's in front of you, which of course is the essential promise of modernism as we think about it. And of course we completely forget, 30 seconds later, what it was that we saw because it is now behind us. So I have a, an extreme weariness of a fixation on futures without being anchored into what it means or what it could do. Uh, because the consequences of that, like someone driving a car like that, can be quite horrific. So I guess that's really where my story is. So it's a, it's a sort of a duality, I, I guess. It was the original strategic foresight and the development of really quite practical tools, mostly in the, the corporate world, but also with large research institutes. And then secondly, in its latest incarnation, in this idea of macro history, which is how do we look at these large systems that we're in? And if they are truly dying, then what does a new system look like? So, Mike, it sounds like there was a change when the second dimension of your interest emerged. Was that a philosophical sort of shift? And if so, did that come from, from Sahail or some other inspiring figure? Or was that something that happened to you? I don't think it did come from a particular person. So one of the things that always fascinated me was this idea that things develop, they mature, and then they die. And... So my reading started to suggest that, in fact, most of the ideas that we've been holding on to are extremely mature. And not only are they mature, they're starting to exhibit some quite dangerous symptoms. So I guess I became more and more sensitive to the, the issues around um, the environmental systems and their poor performance. I became more and more sensitive to uh, some of the dysfunction that was emerging out of globalization of economy despite the, the benefits. I started to see that, in fact, many of the promises that we had made with the technology were really a deal with the devil that we're only starting to realize right now as we trade off almost without thinking a whole lot of rights as humans and as societies. And we're starting to see huge centralization of power what Michelle Bowens calls uh, netarchists. These are the very few people, and particularly in Silicon Valley and some in uh, China, who fundamentally control now not only just enormous wealth, but really the means through which everybody in society communicates with everybody else. And I don't think that we have the societal structures to really cope in a sophisticated way with that kind of power. So. Yeah, I guess it's philosophical. And of course, there are a number of people who have reached those kinds of conclusions. And I would point out that many of them are, are philosophers or anthropologists. 
like Aaron Apadurai or Helmut Rosa in sociology or Wade Davis who wrote The Navigators which is all about alternative cultures or, or some of the uh, the thinkers out of the Deep South, the Sousa Santos and others. So there are, there are a lot of people I think are, are coming to the same place and are trying to explore and understand what it is to be at this place. Mike, I'm interested in how your practice then changed from somebody who was very interested in, in strategic foresight to then bring in these new concepts that you were thinking about. Can you speak a little bit about what you were doing at that time and how your practice changed? Yes, look, I can, but, I, but I'll go back one into um, the strategic foresight space for a moment. Um, I, I think, you know, all humans need to have a view of the future. I mean, uh, we, we all practice that, even if it is, if I get up, um, there will be a cat there that I've got to let out or whatever it is that we happen to think at the time. So it's a mistake to think that some people think about futures more than others. Um, I think everybody thinks about the future because it's part of what we are as humans. But the really interesting thing about, if you like, the, the strategic foresight space um, is it's about how we interrogate the assumptions that we have about the future. So these are the anticipatory assumptions of the world that we live in. Because as humans, we have very deep patterns in our head. And so if I go back to the analogy, if I get up in the morning and I'm not thinking about it too much, I really, I'm on autopilot. I'm expecting the patterns that were there yesterday morning will be the same tomorrow morning. And so I act in accordance with those patterns. And that's what humans do. And we do the same thing about the larger way that we see the future as well. So one of the, I think, the real, and it's an art, is to surface in ways that people can actually either hear or see the patterns that they have now and other patterns that might be coming for them that are potentially disruptive to those patterns. And then holding that space open long enough for them to interrogate their identity from that level of disruption. And all the other tools that people can use, scenarios, whatever they want to use, that's all fine. But for me, that's the essence of the conversation. Because if you can't break those patterns, then you can't really see any other future possibility. I worry about people who keep drawing scenarios on a two-by-two two matrix because all they've done is bound their world by two straight lines. Often they feed into the patterns which are already here. And then we wonder why people don't change. So for me, it's using anything that will get that conversation going. Now, when we start to look at the great existential challenges that we currently face, so we have this issue of the tipping points on the planet, that Will Stefan and others have been talking about recently in a paper that's colloquially called Hothouse Earth, where he argues that, in fact, unstoppable change comes at two degrees of global warming. I hope he is wrong. By the way, there's 22 of them, so I hope they are wrong. On the other hand, we've also got artificial intelligence emerging. And artificial intelligence is this enormously powerful technology that the people of Google have characterized in the same way as 
the control of fire and the control of electricity. And I don't think we've even got close to having a conversation about how we will deal with the technology. So that's a second existential challenge that I think that we have. And the third one, of course, which is kind of linked to that, is how do we make the transitions away from a society that is completely obsessed with individualism and a notion of economy which says that unstoppable greed is the best thing that you could possibly have, which is called neoliberal economics. So when you start to put those three ideas in some sort of tension with each other, you get to the reluctant conclusion that the ways of thinking that have got us here, this dominant westernized model of knowing, is not sufficient for the future that we are going into. And as soon as I say that, I feel completely frightened because, you know, I'm brought up in that model. You know, my PhD is in that model. This is something I feel incredibly comfortable with. So if we really start to say, no, this is not acceptable, and we must reinvent our way of thinking for two reasons. One, because we have to reduce the effects of those things I've just talked about. The other thing we do is if we can start to change our way of knowing, we can start to see then other ways of knowing that our way of knowing has just made invisible. And that may allow us to see solutions that we've never thought of. So we are all now engaged in a kind of a, a quest for rethinking and understanding what it is to live in this different part of the world. And, and, you know, and it's hard. So if you can't objectify your answer to, um, to, to the issues around the environment, or if you can't objectify your answer around how you solve the global economy, what that means is you're only actually tackling how you see it in front of you into manifestations. This is a thing that the philosopher Timothy Morton calls hyperobjects. And so, you know, what that means is we can never be sure that whatever it is that we're doing actually can tackle where we're up to. So that's, if you like, that's the kind of the broad narrative. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in helping people develop stories about themselves and their future, which are not centered in the way that we have been. So I've started a conversation with some people in Pakistan, which says, if the world that we're living in is incredibly complex, chaotic, contradictory and uncertain, what better place to understand how to live with those dynamics than a country like Pakistan? On a practical local level. Whereas we've always tried to go into this kind of nice, certain, orderly, efficient world, which is just an illusion. It's one of the illusions that we buy into in order to drive that car fast towards the future that I was talking to you about before. So I'm working with a, a, in a little town that's dying at the moment, and uh, I'm having a conversation with them. Uh, the first thing is we'll start to create some images of the future that their local circus troupe will act out, which will really be quite fun. And then they have this enormous fair once a year where they have about 30,000 people descend on the town for a week. And we're going to use guerrilla crowdsourcing to tap into the people in this week 
to actually borrow their ideas to build out our views of the future. But the kinds of things we're talking about are this. So this is the practical edge of the stuff I'm talking about. And I'll come back and talk about a corporate one in a moment, if you like. How can some of these small towns that nobody really cares about build up value exchange systems that aren't all about money? So they have money and something. And how do they do that in ways whereby more of the wealth is kept inside the town and there's more ways of generating wealth than just paying for it through money? How can that town like this, and it's very small, it's 1,200 people, how can it in fact create its own energy systems you know, using a variety of mechanisms so it doesn't have to rely on dodgy power and dodgy communications from people that don't really care about them? You know, how does it build clusters of value which are completely different? Uh, so, for example, in this little town, there are lots and lots of spare blocks of land. And there's also a tree changer in this little town who is um, experimenting with container houses. So we started talking about the idea of renting container houses on blocks of land to uh, wealthy city people who've got nothing else to do with their lives so that they can build gardens on these plots. And we can then work with some of the young unemployed kids to actually then help them, if you like, maintain the plots and keep them going and keep all the other unemployed kids off them at the same time. Um, so that, in fact, that these things become not just something that's useful for people in the city that really want to have authentic vegetables and actually now own their own vegetable plots, but actually create a whole lot of ways of doing things uh, in the community that are of benefit to that community. So... We've probably got about 30 or 40 ideas like that at the moment inside this particular community. And it's a question of building the diversity of ideas because not all of them will work. So in the, in the current model, we are moving towards monoculture, monoculture consultancies. There's only eight of them in the world. Monoculture, you know, large monoculture food. In the world I'm talking about, it's about building diversities. Lots and lots of diversities with lots and lots of resilience. So you need both. You need this broad narrative which says we need to think completely differently about the world. And you'll see with the example I've given you how you can take those larger narratives of rethinking and then express them and realize them and build up systems at a local level. And by the way, this is about systems. It's not about just a little project. This is about seeing at a local level these systems that aren't state, aren't private sector, live somewhere in between that are capable of self-regenerating. That's where I'll, that's the kind of work that I'm going into. Great. It's a great example, Mike. I want to just ask, you were describing a different way of seeing the future mm. in a way that was making me think, wow, that's quite radical. I wondered how you could lead people or encourage people to, to break out of those routines of thinking about the future in a certain way. The example that you've given about all these fabulous new mm. ideas that are coming from this little town, is that an example of that? Yes, of course it is. But what you've got to understand is for most people in the world who are marginalised one way or another, they don't trust the current institutional fabric. They don't think that governments act for them. And by the way, if you go to Latin America, it's probably the best examples, you know, with due respect to one or two governments there. Most governments are completely corrupt, and the people know that they are not there for them. 
I would say, given the behaviours in Australia in the last few weeks, that we could say the same thing of our politicians too. On the other hand, we also see large-scale private enterprise, I think, without moral compass, generally speaking, acting in the same kind of way. And where they operate in jurisdictions where they have fewer protections than what we've got, they behave very badly. The same companies that would we think are respectable Australian firms. But, you know, we see equally, um, you know, the, the, the use of uh, labour hire firms to destroy, you know, real wages and real value. And the net result of that is that communities lose value. I want to say right now, I've talked about dualisms before. So we have what we call the capitalist system sitting over here. And typically we put something on the other end of the line called socialism. That's a line. I'm not talking about anything that is on that line. I'm talking about something which is in a completely different kind of space, which is called post-capitalism. So it's post-capitalism, it's post-growth, it's post-extractivism, it's post-all of these things, because those models are towards the end of their use by date. And so that's how we have to work on some of these sorts of things. I was sitting in a large forum in Bangkok last week, uh, listening to a presentation on corporate foresight and you know the production of radars that showed people what was happening and all of that kind of good stuff. And I've seen hundreds of those. But I asked a question of the guy who was presenting, who was really good, um, out of Europe. I've said, yes, but the dynamics of what constitutes an organisation are changing as well. So the organisation as we understand it comes out of the mechanism of the 20th century. It's based on efficiencies and economies of scale and, and a particular way of transactions and a particular kind of uh, way of having social license, which is embedded in reputations we've understood it. And all of those dynamics are changing in front of us right now. The blockchains of this world are pushing towards distributed and decentralized models rather than centralized models. The artificial intelligences are rapidly destroying work as we understand it at a rate far faster than anything else is replacing it. The notion of social license, when organisations no longer feel bounded by borders and therefore they can simply escape to whichever haven suits them, I think in fact has made people very cynical about their right to exist. And so in my practice, it's not sufficient just to look at what's changing in, the, in an environment for an organisation, what's changing out there. But it's really about how what's going on out there is actually completely changing the idea of what it means to be an organization itself. The very notion of dynamics of organization are changing. And that's extremely confronting. And again, the people who talk about that kind of stuff are, I think, very few and far between. Could you give some examples of people who are talking like that, describing this sort of mutual influence isn't it i think well, well it's a, well it's a systemic change i mm. look the person who i think talks uh, deeply about this uh, is nora bateson i don't know whether i'd call her an american philosopher a swedish sociologist um she is a renaissance person and i think that what we're talking about here is understanding that alternative realities can be created that are systemically completely different from the kinds of realities that we now have to live in. 
so look, there are a lot of people, I think, globally who are trying to grapple with these things and to think about them in different kinds of ways. Um, I think Sahail and Yatula has been extraordinarily influential throughout Asia. And I think there is a real third way of thinking about futures emerging right now inside Asia. Clearly, people like Jim Data have had enormous influence in the Americas. And there are a whole lot of Europeans like Real Miller and others, you know, I think have been influential for a long time in the European space. Um, and for that matter, I think that, you know, people who are heavily invested in uh, scenarios like Rafa Ramirez at Oxford really now see that we need to move beyond scenarios to narratives, uh, which are a really completely different way of thinking about where the future is. So, Mike, I want to try and understand on a practical level. So yeah. you, you're working as a consultant in a number yeah. of fields. How do you lead people or how do you set the scene for people to be creative and to be able to free themselves enough to think about different futures at a completely different level? I think the first thing is you have to actually explain to people in words that they can understand um, what it is you're trying to do. So uh, the, the, the one that I use at the moment, uh, my flavour of the month, is really quite simple. It is that each of us or our organisation or our society um, has a sense of identity. In other words, it, it's a reflection of the world as we understand it. So that, in fact, it's a relational expression. And as long as your identity is roughly conforming to the world, then life's pretty good but if the world starts changing around you and I'm by world here I'm talking about the context so those things I referred to earlier then you can assume that your identity is out of sync with the world you're going into and that's where you need to think about how to change and the first step in that is to be able to um, characterize and describe pretty carefully where you think those differences are. So, with respect to the environment, in the current model, nature is our servant. We, in fact, we use the word nature to express servant. Mother Earth is another way of saying it. What if, in fact, we need to live in the planet, not in some sort of objective relationship with it? Now, that's an uncertainty. That's, that's something that as humans we're not good at, certainly not in our society. And if that's true, we need to think about how, what that means and how we would go about changing as a consequence. I could say, do the same thing on the future of work and artificial intelligence. We could have the same conversation about autonomous vehicles and the current vehicles. We could go on and on and on. But each of these, if you like, are a wrinkle in the nature of the relational thing between the context and the identity. And so I can describe that on one piece of paper or on a whiteboard. People get it. And so I think that the people who have the best conversations about the future are those who can, in fact, just, just ask the right kinds of questions and allow people to connect both their memories and their patterns with what potential futures might be and just hold that space open for them to see where the difference is. That's what it's about. 
So for me, anyone who is overly reliant on a particular set of tools will live and die by their set of tools. For me, PowerPoints are just wallpaper. I don't care. I don't think it's the issue. See, futurists don't know the future. They don't know the future any more than anyone else knows the future. They just don't, because nobody knows the future. The question is, are they in a position to help people have the right conversations? So futurists don't have uh, any kind of view of the future that's different from anyone else, really. They might have been sensitised to some of the potential future changes, but they don't know the future. And I think there's been an over-reliance on trying to make it into some sort of scientific discipline. And yet all the most interesting future stuff that I now read is coming from people who have nothing to do with futures. I've mentioned some of them already. So I'm not a big fan of you know, obsessing with tools. I think it's just, it's looking at this thing from the wrong place. And as I say, the thing that really bothers me is we don't connect memory and patterns with intention and future context. So you need all four to actually do three things. One, be able to imagine something that's different. Two, to actually in fact imagine in a way that gives more people hope. Because I think we now see a society where in fact hope is only for those who are wealthy. And three, that actually uh, when it's put together people say, I'm prepared to cooperate with lots of other people and collaborate with lots of other people to build that future because I can anticipate it. So I can actually see it. So it's imagination, aspiration and anticipation. Those are the three keys. And big borrow and steal whatever tools that you want. Remembering that the individual is not always the centre of everything. That dualisms are just made up lines that frequently have no academic basis whatsoever no rigor to them, that there's more than one way of knowing. Polynesian navigators knew more about navigating and knowing how you do this than Europeans did before they discovered latitude. So they knew, because they can feel the rhythm of the ways, they know that certain birds will always return to shore, therefore they will only be X number of Ks off the coast if you see one. Certain islands produce certain kinds of waves and, and so on and goes on. So we need to actually think about these different kinds of knowing. And most importantly, I think, we need to get over our fetish that economics is everything. Because it's a cancer. Now, I am not saying that people should live in poverty. What I'm trying to say, in fact, is that we need to move towards quality of life, not quantity of life. Which is very upsetting for people in the advertising industry, but don't get over it. Like I'm interested to know how you're seeing the future, a possible future in 30 years' time. I think it's a time of great tension. It's a revolutionary time. So leaving aside the revolutions, uh, the institutional revolutions that uh, beguile the planet and cause tremendous suffering, we've got a number of technological revolutions playing out. And as, as I said before, I think the we don't really understand the power of many of those. So the future in the next 30 years is, will we control those technologies or will they start to control us? And I think that's one of the open questions. 
I think that the the other the second revolution is really the sort of socio-economic one. You know, is will we in fact uh, having really benefited from a wave of so-called progress uh, and put a lot of people into cities, which are now completely unsustainable? Will we be able to in fact create social and economic arrangements that allow relative prosperity around the planet without doing unalterable damage? The third revolution is really about, and you know, that's before the people in the cities kind of die or choke on the pollution that they've created. The, the third revolution is really about knowledge. It's about whether, whether we can, in fact, really make all the knowledge systems uh, on the planet work for us and what uh, Rockstrom and others call safe operating spaces. So that's with a planetary boundary and some sort of fundamental conditions for humans to live with dignity as well. And so there's a really important kind of issue there. Then we have two other revolutions. The first thing is, as I've already indicated, I think we have been at war with the environment and we have lost that war. This is the, the work that people like Bruno Latour and many others have used. Uh, I think I'm with him and I think the science backs it up. So we're now in, if you like, a post-war revolution where the planetary forces will determine by and large how humans live not the other way around and humans really still have to come to terms with that idea we haven't really quite understood that we've moved into a world which is extremely toxic of our own creating and most of that we can never undo and the final revolution is this revolution of thinking that i've been talking about so it's about a different way of being on the planet and that's a very difficult thing for us to, in fact, come to terms with because there are very few models for us to understand how to really do that. But that's the journey we must go on because the failure to address any of those or a combination of them as they work on each other means that on an intergenerational basis, the kinds of futures that are potentially available are horrific. And on a good day, I think, of course we can do that. Because I am an optimist. I want to find an escape. So I think this is, this is, a, this is the time to really understand what it means to be human. Whereas I would argue in the last hundred years, all we've understood is how to be intelligent machines at the service of someone else, because we've bought and sold time. What I heard when you were saying that is it's about potential. And it brings me around to a question about agency. Mm. I, I don't know that I've ever met a futurist who doesn't think that we have at least some agency. Agency meaning will or a vision of something to be different and perhaps preferred. Is that a motivating well, factor for you? Yeah, well, well, I think there's two things. The first thing is if agency means that we can keep to look at everything as some sort of object, that we can either use or discard, then that's not the sort of agency that interests me um, because I think that's part of the problem. If agency means we need to reconstitute our ways of thinking, our ability to communicate, our ways of learning, uh, the fact that we can harness energy in ways that almost nothing else can, in ways which are beneficial for some kind of future, where we accept as the first premise that we are not in control, then I am for that kind of agency. We have that kind of capacity as a species. The question is, will, will we use it? And I think that the answer to that lies in 
the narratives that we begin to form. So one of the things that really enables agency are really strong stories. And of course, when I look around now, I don't see many stories. I see stories of exploitation by the strong men. I see cynical stories by so-called elected politicians. I see stories of delusion by people who think that money is the answer to everything. I see stories of illusion by people who think that if you put a policy in place, somehow everything will work. So those aren't the stories I'm talking about. They're not stories, really. They're just kind of places on the chessboard, which really don't advance us any, any further. Mike, there's a, there's a question that I think every futurist gets asked. What is foresight? How would you describe it briefly to somebody who asks? Okay, so, so my first point is, for a lot of the reasons I've just explained, I don't really see myself as a futurist. I really see myself as someone who tries to live inside this expanded now, which incorporates memories, patterns, intention, and what I think the future might be. And, and to be more conscious of that, knowing that there's a lot of stuff that I don't know. So that's the kind of work that my good friend Richard Hames um, has developed. And I think it comes down really to understanding that different kinds of futures rely really only on three things. By the way, I think this is also the basis for innovation. How you think about time, the kinds of forms that in fact you are investing in or relying on. So a modern pyramid organisation is a form. A school classroom with rows of desks, which hasn't changed since about 1890, is a form of doing. By the way, they were prepared to teach kids how to work in factories. That's why we had the bell going like it was. So time and form. And then space is the other one. How we think about space. What's important, where we come from. You know, why, why are we obsessed with nation states as an idea? Uh, unless we're talking about sport, in which case we're in another kind of alternative reality. So this is where I sort of play around with the idea of futures architect. If we look at the futures dimension of that, as opposed to the past dimensions for a moment, what we need to understand is what do these future spaces actually look like? What could they look like, given some of those large things I just talked about? And then what would be some good things to do in that space? And how would we organise and shape and cooperate to actually make that happen? And then, of course, we actually need to work out how we can, in a kind of easy and exciting kind of way, get, in, get towards that future space without kind of a trail of destruction in the process. So I think for me, if you would ask me what foresight is, it is really just simply that. It's all about how we think about time, how we think about form, and how we think about space. And so what I'm arguing essentially is, you know, the tyranny of clock time is over. It's a failing model. The tyranny of seeing the world as a machine and human society as a machine and our cities as machines is over. And the spaces that we need to think about now rely on how we will actually need to operate inside a world which is toxic. So the spaces that we need to think about 
we think about the planet essentially being a spaceship that we've been busily kicking holes in the infrastructure and killing off half the crew, you know, it's not a good idea, and poisoning some of the um, areas as well. So we need to think a lot more about how the spaces work and what they mean. When you take you know, a city or you take an organisation or um, you take whatever the, the focus is that you want to look at, what you see is how much value is wasted because of inappropriate time, form and space. Mike, that's fantastic. I'm sensing as you're speaking that this is very much a collaborative project. For you, even though you don't call yourself a futurist necessarily, I think you're a facilitator in the space to help people imagine something that's very different from the world that we're living in at the moment, which you say has had its time. So something else needs to emerge. Mm-hmm. And what I'm what I'm hearing how I'm hearing you speak about your craft is creating the sort of space where people can imagine into something completely different. Mm, I think that's right. So it's always emergent because I I think that's where we're actually going so that that this is a process of discovery and I'm really fortunate to uh, have access to some wonderful minds globally that think about these kinds of things and talk about them. But equally, I like talking with people who have no idea about what I'm talking about but have this kind of deep concern inside that the world they're living in is is just sort of not kind of going to a place that they feel good about for themselves and their children. And the role, I think, is it's about connecting the relationships together. If there's a need to at the right time, occasionally I might have an opportunity to be a conductor. But sometimes I might be there playing some instrument that will help the rest of it work. And at other times, I might just be turning the pages which helps somebody else do it. And still at other times, I'm sitting there listening. And so it is about working at what the roles are, about, because I think that's actually what future leadership looks like. You know, it, is, it is all of those things. Because in this world that we're going into, it's how all the relationships interrelate that matters, not what some particular mode is or node is doing at some time. So that's very much where I see myself coming from. I'm working with Michael Jackson at Shaping Tomorrow, the big scanning AI scanning service, to build a global group of maybe 20 of us sense makers that help people make sense of what's coming out of that. I'm working clearly with Richard to help build some of these large narratives and to make the narratives that other people are uh, are creating visible. So that's very much about creating a platform, not a tent, a platform which shows what those start to to look like. I'm working with my friends in in Chorus Space who are helping the organisation as we've understood it work out what do they do in this confusion? Where do they go? Because, by the way, uh, I don't want to privilege one group over another here. The last time I looked, we have yet to develop any kind of decent, large-scale way of getting all the people we don't like off the planet. Um, And I think it'll be hundreds of years before we can. So that really means we've got to bring them all with us. And so the question is, how do we have different kinds of conversations? Sometimes with people whose view of the world I find difficult. But you can only resolve the difficulty by thinking about how is it we can build escapes together. 
Uh, and, and that's where I see the future. Mike, thank you very much for joining us on FuturePod. It's been wonderful to hear about your career and your interests, uh, your inspiration, and I'm sure that what you have given us today will be an inspiration to many of our listeners. So thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Mendy Yuri saying goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.